You know, the more I think about how great and glorious God is, the more I realize how I am not. And I am weak, and I am frail, and I make mistakes, and I don't understand nearly as much as I think I do. You know, it's amazing, when you're in your late teens and early 20s, you know everything. But as you get older, it seems like all you know is you don't know a whole lot. The world changes, and, and things change, and it's kind of humbling. I've been thinking a lot about that kind of thing. I, I turned 42 this week. An old man. Thank you. <laughs> what am I shaking your head for, Robin? You know, one of the interesting things about having a January birthday, and my birthday is January 10th, is it comes really close to New Year's Day, right? So when it's your birthday, you're already kind of, especially as you get older, you start to think about your life and you evaluate your life so far and, and what have you accomplished this year. But everybody does that at New Year's, and so it's like this kind of this double dose. And so I'm just so painfully aware this time of year, like what the psalm says, that our days are like a mere breadth, they're like a passing shadow. Our lives are very brief. In football terms, because I know that's on everybody's mind, let's just be honest here. In football terms, you know, supposing, assuming that I live to at least 85, I'm in the last couple of minutes of the second quarter, right? I mean, I'm almost to halftime. And, 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 you know, when you think about a football game, when you get to halftime, you, you, you kind of evaluate how things are going so far, right? And that's how I, can, I am in my life. I'm, I'm thinking about how my life has been so far and, and, and kind of looking for and planning towards what's the, how am I going to finish out the game? Is the second half going to be better than, than the first half? Now, you think about what a football team does when they go into the locker room at halftime. They get yelled at by the coach, right? Maybe. Well, they, they examine what's working, what's not working. They celebrate the good things that have happened, and they talk about let's not do the bad things that happened. They, they revise their strategy for the second half, and, and they might get a little rest, get a little refocused, get ready to go back out. What if we did that regularly with our lives? You know, doctors want us to at least get an annual physical, right? This checkup every year where you go and you get some blood work and they check your blood pressure and they listen to your heart and they do all of these things because they want to make sure that you're healthy. They want to catch any problems, right, Dr. Bob? I've got one coming up with you this month. So, you know, you want to, you want to make sure that, that, you know, there's no problems developing. It develops, you kind of get a, a baseline for your long-term health that the doctor can measure things against going down the road. It's a good thing. I encourage everybody to do that. But what if we had regular spiritual checkups? And not just once a year, but weekly, daily even, to evaluate and see how am I doing spiritually? What's my spiritual health? To help detect problems in our marriage or in our parenting or in other relationships, to, to kind of identify and address those sins and those wrong thinking and bad attitudes and misplaced priorities that can so easily derail us, to establish a baseline to kind of evaluate our spiritual growth against. Well, no matter what your age, I want to encourage you to do that, to develop a regular habit of spiritual checkups. Whether you're at halftime in life or not, you can at least pause and take some time outs, right? And just stop for a moment and say, what's working in my life? What's not working in my life? Where am I strong? Where am I weak? 
And how can I rely on God to help me make sure that tomorrow is better than today? The start of a new year just seems to be a natural time for us to engage in that kind of personal examination. This past Wednesday at Reconnect, we had a wonderful time just sort of praying together for the new year. And, and I put together a tool. It's, I borrowed it from somebody else and tweaked it and changed it a little bit. But there's a tool, and it's up here available um, on either side of the platform and in the vestibule. And it's just sort of a spiritual health checkup. helps you to kind of set some goals for this year in some different areas. And I encourage you to pick one of those up before you leave today. But beyond that, we're going to spend the next few Sundays looking at some biblical values, how we can develop some specific practices to help us grow stronger, healthier, and more successful in four key areas of life. And those are our worship, our witness, our walk, and our work. And I hope that we can discover some ways to measure how we're doing in those areas and to set some goals and begin to make some progress in meeting them. I found Psalm 139, 23, and 24 to be a very powerful prayer and a practical help in my life. It says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, if you read all of Psalm 139, it's a beautiful song. It's really an extended prayer of thanksgiving. And here at the end, David finally comes to make his request. But his request isn't what you might expect. He doesn't pray for health and wealth and success and power and those kinds of things. Rather, David's prolonged contemplation on the greatness and the power of God has just reminded him how weak and powerless he is. David sort of has had an Isaiah 6 kind of moment. You remember when Isaiah was in the temple and he had the vision of the Lord high and exalted his response was, Woe is me, for I am a man with unclean lips living in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord Almighty and His holiness and His glory. David had that kind of a moment. And I want us to just take a minute to notice David's requests. He asked for God to search him. Search me and know my heart. He invites God to know him deeply from the inside out. And this isn't just a one-time experience. Like I said, we can't just have this spiritual checkup once a, a, a year or even once a week. No, this is an ongoing thing. Back in verse 1 of this psalm, David said, O Lord, you have searched me, and you do know me. So if David's already said God has searched him and does know him, then why is he coming here at the end saying, Lord, search me and know me? Well, it's because we're constantly changing, aren't we? We're either progressing or regressing. We're either growing stronger or weaker, hotter or colder. I mean, I could be on fire for the Lord today, but next week, cold and callous. So David realizes that this isn't just a one-time thing. He needs God to go on searching him and knowing him. And, and we need to do the same thing. We need to submit and resubmit to God's work in our lives to allow Him every day to accomplish in us what He has purposed. And having God search me and know me is far more important than for me to know myself. You know, in, in popular culture today, sort of the pop psychology, we've talked about know yourself and be true to yourself. But the problem with that is that 
it is only through God's knowledge of me that I can ever really know myself because I'm really good at self-deception. Aren't you? I mean, I've got blind spots. I'm pretty good at sort of just believing about myself what I want and seeing about myself what I want. The goal is so much more than just self-knowledge. The goal here is righteousness. And that's why David goes on in verse 23 to say, Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, it's not hard to imagine why David had anxious thoughts. If you just know the story of his life, you know that he had a lot of rough patches. He had a lot against him. He was leading a, a country. He had enemies all around him. And he's just spent this prayer praising on and focusing on the unlimited knowledge and power of the God who is present everywhere. I mean, think about it. God is completely trustworthy and He's completely capable to handle any of our problems, yet so often we fail to trust Him, don't we? We fail to trust Him. How often do you let your anxious thoughts control you rather than childlike trust in the God who is so wise and so powerful and knows so much better how to handle your situation than you do? We need God to reveal to us our anxious thoughts and then to hold those thoughts up to the light of His perfect love that casts out all fear. David asked God to search out those worries that would challenge his faith, that might possibly lead him into sin. And we should do the same. And then David goes on in the next verse and says, See if there's any offensive way in me. We need God to see into our hearts and minds and root out the wickedness that continues to try to hang on for dear life in our hearts because sin is so pervasive. It, it clings to every thought and every word and every deed, and so often we can't see it in ourselves. We need God to see for us and reveal to us the wickedness in our hearts. But David doesn't just want God to point out his sins and failings. He goes on at the end of this verse to pray, Lead me in the way everlasting. So it's not just God search me and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way. He's not just asking God to make him feel bad about himself. He's asking God to show him how to make it better. Give me a course of action. Lead me in the way everlasting, the way of righteousness, the one and only way that leads to eternal life. And if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, when God does point out our errors, we should want to be corrected and forgiven and restored to full fellowship with God. Because the way everlasting is the way home to the Father's heart. And His heart loves you so very much. This is the intimacy that God wants us to have with Him. Psalm 139 reminds us that God knew us and He formed us even in the womb. He fashions our days. He knows our thoughts. He hears our words. We cannot escape His presence. When we sit down, when we stand up, He is there. He who inhabits all things is near to us. He sees us in the light. He sees us in the dark. We are the continual object of His thoughts and affections. He searches us. He changes us. This is true intimacy. This is true love and grace. And that kind of love and grace deserves and demands our worship. Amen? Jesus Himself reemphasized the Old Testament command, worship the Lord your God, as He was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
Psalm 95, 6 calls us to come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We were made to worship. It is one of our chief purposes. And it requires all of who we are. Sadly, oftentimes, our worship is often little more than a custom. A tradition. Maybe even an obligation. Our worship should be an uncontrollable expression of love based in truth, empowered by the Spirit. But too often, we worship God in vain. Merely honoring our Creator with our lips while our hearts are far from Him. In his book on spiritual disciplines, Donald S. Whitney tells a very sad story about his 10th birthday party. And it was a great day. The, the party was great. It was a day of fun. He had all of his friends around. They gave him great presents. His dad grilled out hamburgers and hot dogs in the backyard. It was the perfect 10-year-old boy's birthday party. And he wanted to end that party by giving his friends a gift. So they were all big fans of their high school basketball team. It was a great team. It was a championship team. So he bought them all tickets to go together to see the high school basketball game. Now, he describes how he envisioned that evening. He said, The picture in my mind was the perfect ending to a 10-year-old boy's perfect birthday. With four friends on one side, four on the other, I would sit in the middle while we munched popcorn, playfully punched each other, and cheered on our high school heroes. But that's not how it turned out. His perfect moment was shattered because once inside, all of his friends scattered. They went and sat with other people. Not so much as a, I'll see you later, thank you, had a great time, I'm going to go sit with someone else. They just left. And Donald had to sit by himself in the bleachers, growing old alone. It turned out to be a lonely, miserable basketball game to end an otherwise glorious day. Now Whitney goes on to draw this application from that painful childhood memory. He says, though we come to an event, worship, where God is the guest of honor, it is possible to give Him a routine gift, sing a few customary songs to Him, and then totally neglect Him while we focus on others and enjoy the performance of those in front of us. Like my 10-year-old friends, we may leave without any twinge of conscience, without any awareness of our insensitivity, convinced we have fulfilled an obligation well. Maybe worship for you has grown vain. If you're going to be honest, maybe it's just routine. If you're honest, you would say, you know, I find that I'm just kind of praising God with my lips, but my heart and my thoughts are, are elsewhere. What's the solution? Well, I think it begins with a heart examination. I think we have to look at our heart. And in order to retune our hearts to worship God out of love, in spirit and in truth, we first of all have to remember what worship is. Worship, first and foremost is our love response to God's love for us. It's a love response to God. Jesus was asked by a religious scholar to boil down all the Old Testament commandments into one. The greatest commandment. Here's what Jesus responded. Ben mentioned this earlier in the children's sermon. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Worship is our response to who God is and what God does. The English word worship 
comes from an old Saxon word that literally means worth-ship. To worship someone is to acknowledge its worth, its inherent value. So when we worship God, we come to ascribe to Him the proper worth, to magnify His worthiness. Now, if you did a quick survey of worship in the Bible, you read some Psalms, look at Revelation, you'll often see expressions like this. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is our God to receive praise and honor. God is worthy. Amen? Can we agree to that? And He is worthy of far more than just our words. He's worthy of all of our love. A love that takes our heart, it takes our soul, it takes our every ounce of strength, it takes every thought of our mind to love Him. Now how does our worship, our declaring the worth and the value of this God who loves us so intimately, how does that worship become stale? Well, I think it happens when we lose sight of God's infinite worth. When our worship feels lifeless, it means that we have a heart problem. Our love for God, our affections for God, have grown cold. And that's why the Bible commands us again and again and again to remember. Look up in a concordance sometime the word remember. It's in the Bible a lot. We are always commanded to remember who God is and what God has done for us because it's so easy for the world to distract us and for us to forget who God is and what He has done for us. And the more we focus on God, the more we will understand His infinite worth and value. And then our worship won't be a duty performed with empty ritual, but it will be a love song that's expressed with deep affection. One reason we gather together for worship on Sunday mornings is to keep God and the story of His goodness and grace in front of our eyes and ears, to remind our hearts together how beautiful and good our God is. And when we see God revealed in the Bible, and we're reminded by the body of Christ around us of His presence and His grace, we will respond in grateful, loving worship. Everything that we do in our worship service here at First Baptist Church, our, our goal, everything we strive to do is either revelation or it's response. Either revelation is happening in worship or response is happening in worship. When the Word of God is read, when it's being preached, when we hear wonderful biblically-based songs, that is ways in which God reveals Himself to His church. And then we're given opportunities to respond. We respond in prayer. We respond in singing. We respond in standing to honor the Word of God as it's being read. We respond in giving our tithes and offerings. And then at the end of the worship service, as the invitation is offered, we are given an opportunity to respond in very practical, specific ways to God's call to salvation, to His call to church membership, to His call to vocational ministry, or maybe just His call to come and rededicate ourselves and retune our hearts for worship. That is what worship is about. It's not just enough to listen to others preach, pray, and sing. It's not even enough just to use our lips and our lungs to vocalize words ourselves. What matters is what's in our heart. Are you focusing on God? Are you locked in to what He's saying to you? Do you mean the words that you're singing? See, worship isn't true worship unless it's based in truth. Are you being truthful in worship or are you just going through the motions? 
Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well about this very thing. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. It'll be on the screen as well, but we're going to jump around in different verses, and I think it's helpful to actually look at it in your copy of the Scripture. John chapter 4, Jesus has been having this conversation with the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't have a lot to do with each other, certainly not a Jewish man, a rabbi, and a Samaritan woman, a woman of questionable reputation. And listen to what Jesus says to her in verse 23. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is describing for us here the kind of worship that God wants. He wants spirit and truth kinds of worship. Later in John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus would talk about the spirit of truth who would come to indwell the hearts of His followers. Spirit and truth are inseparable. And they are central to heartfelt worship. So I want us to examine both of these, beginning with truth. Let's start with truth. Our worship must first and foremost be truthful. The Samaritans and the Jews were overly concerned about the how and the where of their worship. And Jesus makes it clear to this woman that what is of utmost importance isn't where, it isn't how, it is who we worship. Now sadly, the Samaritans were worshiping in ignorance. They had removed themselves from much of the Old Testament teachings and practices of worship. Jesus, in fact, if you look up one verse in verse 22, he hits the nail on the head when he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. They didn't know who they were worshiping. They worshiped in ignorance. Now Jesus goes on to say that that the Jews, on the other hand, do worship what they know since salvation is from the Jews. Now the Jews, despite all their faults and their flaws, and Jesus certainly has a lot of criticism for them, still they had been faithful students of the law and the prophets, and they had been longing and praying for God's Messiah to come. And now the Messiah has come from among them. This one at the well speaking to this woman had not only come to reveal the truth, he himself is the truth. Jesus doesn't just give us truth, he is the truth. The living God can only be known and worshipped through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Sadly, this woman was blinded to that truth by her antagonism. You see, that the hatred and the distrust between the Samaritans and the Jews went back centuries. They had competing forms of worship. They had competing sacred worship places, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. And both groups could rightly tout the rich spiritual heritage of their chosen places of worship. But the real rub for the Samaritans was sort of this religious snobbery of the Jews. Look back up at verse 20. Here's the statement that sort of precipitated this whole uh, teaching from Jesus. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, now listen to that again. Listen carefully to, to the, what she's insinuating here. She says, Our fathers worshipped 
on this mountain. She's referring to their actual worship. There's a spiritual heritage for her people to worship there. They're deeply personally connected to Mount Gerizim. But she says, but you Jews claim that where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's as if the Jews had a monopoly on God. It's as if they were saying, it's, it's all, you can only worship God here. You can't worship God anywhere else but here, in this place, in this way, because God belongs to us, He doesn't belong to you. Now, as Jesus always does, He cut through all the superficial issues and He got to the heart of the matter. And that's the reality of worship. See, Jesus coming ushered in a new age for God's new people under a new covenant. The old places and institutions and ways of worship were passing away. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear several times that He is the temple, that He is the place where we come to meet with God and worship. So it's no longer a question of Jerusalem or Gerizim. It's not about the place where we worship, but the person whom we worship. It's all about being rightly related to the one we worship through Jesus Christ. Now sadly, we could have this similar conversation today. Sadly, we haven't changed all that much from the Samaritans and the Jews when it comes to missing the point of worship. So many churches are tied up in mindless, endless, meaningless bickerings about the sights and the sounds of worship. Some say you can only worship God with hymnals, and some say, nope, you've got to have a screen with all the fog machines and the lights going. Some say you can only wear, worship wearing a suit and tie. Well, Matt, you and I would be in trouble today, wouldn't we? Others say, no, you've got to have skinny jeans and untuck your shirt. Some people say you can only worship God with an organ and a piano. Others say, nope, you've got to have drums and keyboards and guitars too. And meanwhile, God's heart is breaking because we've left Him all alone on the bleachers while we argue over the quality and style of a performance. We must worship God in truth. Do you know who you worship? Do you understand why we must worship Him? Let's focus on the eternal truth. You know, as long as the ways that we're worshiping God are biblically based, then they're okay. If we were over in Africa on the mission field, we'd be worshiping a whole lot differently than we are today. But we'd know, nonetheless be worshiping God if we're worshiping Him in truth and in spirit. Let's focus on the revealed Word of God being read and preached and sung and less on the vehicles that deliver that truth. And the, and the second thing that worship must be is it must be spiritual. It's not only whom we worship in truth, but in what way, by what spirit we worship Him. Now Jesus told us an important truth about God here, that God's essence is spirit. Jesus, earlier in this conversation, offered this woman living water the living water of God's Spirit, who alone can touch and heal the deepest wounds and regrets of our soul. It is only the Spirit of God that can fill our deep emptiness and quench our spiritual thirst. The water which Jesus offered her could well up to springs of eternal life, freeing her from attachments to Jerusalem or Gerizim and bringing her into the authentic worship of the living God. The only way that we can worship in truth is through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who opens our minds to the truth, who awakens our hearts to God's love for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can even say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. 
And what Paul means there is that true saving faith cannot come apart from the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals that we need Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us to God and who gives us even the faith to believe in Him for salvation. We cannot be saved apart from the Spirit. And guess what? We cannot worship Him apart from the Spirit either. It is by the Holy Spirit that we can refocus our worship from what is external to what is internal and what is eternal. To worship in spirit is to worship sincerely from the inside out. You know, it doesn't matter how beautifully you sing or play or how poetic your prayers are. If it isn't offered to God sincerely and purely, it's not worship. Worship is like a divine dance where the spirit and the truth are constantly interacting. One leads us to the other, and then that one leads us back again. The Spirit brings us into truth. The truth draws us into the Spirit. So true worship must be in both. It uses both our our hearts and our heads. Our emotions and our minds are involved in our worship. So, worship that's true is our love response to God. And it must be done truthfully, sincerely, It must be done spiritually, relying on the Spirit, not on ourselves, not on whoever's up here on the platform preaching or singing, but on the Spirit of God. So how do we get our hearts there? How do we retune our hearts for this kind of worship? Well, I want to close with just a few simple applications to to become a part of your spiritual checkup. I hope that over the next few Sundays you can sort of develop a list of some things that you can look back on and say, am I doing these things? And they can be sort of a a checklist for your own spiritual health. The first suggestion is is to ask yourself, am I worshiping God personally and privately every day? You know, if our worship on Sunday is, is, is not what it should be, we have to ask ourselves, well, have we been worshiping God this week before we got here? If we only worship God weekly, then our worship is going to be weekly. We have to worship God every day. Psalm 119 and 164 says seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. Jews and Christians both have a very long spiritual heritage of of set times of prayer throughout the day. And at different points in Jewish and Christian history, it fluctuated anywhere from three to seven set times a day to pray. We can kind of pick up on some of these when you read the story of Daniel. He prays at set times every day. Kind of gets him into trouble, doesn't it? You look at Jesus and his disciples in the Gospels and in Acts. You read about that it was the hour of prayer and they'd be going to the temple to pray. But Jesus was known to withdraw often to lonely places to pray. And it wasn't just at the set times. So the point is that God wants to spend time with us one-on-one every day. Now whether you do that spontaneously as the Spirit leads you, or whether you, you need to be disciplined and you need to you know, set your phone to beep and remind you, oh, I need to stop, take a break and pray. Whatever you find works, do it. The point is the Creator of the universe loves you. And He wants to spend time with you every day in worship. He wants you to spend time in prayer with Him. He wants to speak to you through His Word. So I want to encourage you, use a, use a, a daily Bible reading plan or a devotional. But don't just go through the motions. Don't just kind of rush through it in the morning. Sit with God. Meditate on Him, on His goodness and His grace. Sing a worship psalm or, a song or, or read a psalm of praise. 
Write down the things that you're thankful for. Allow God to speak to you through His Word, to teach you and rebuke you and correct you and instruct you in the right ways to live. Confess any sins that He brings to your mind and commit your plans to Him for the day. Second question is this, am I leading my family in regular times of worship? Now, there's no better family activity than spending time together, reading God's Word, praying, and worshiping together. And that can be a regular weekly set time. It can be spontaneous. It can be at bedtime or it can be in the morning before we all scatter throughout our day. And I believe there's no better way to instill in your child the value of and love for regular time with God and His Word and in prayer than sharing those times with them. Model for them what it sounds like to confess sin, to give God thanks and praise, to pray for specific blessings on the people and the situations around us, to engage Scripture thoughtfully. If you're interested in more, I know that Ben can can point you to specific resources uh, that can help you have that family time of worship or daily devotion together. And and at the end of this month, first of next month, we're going to have a resource center that's going to have some stuff that you can use as well. And another way that you can lead your family in regular times of worship and model worship for your kids is to bring them with you to worship on Sundays. And that's the third question that I think we could ask ourselves to help retune our hearts to worship. And that is, how committed am I to worshiping with the gathered people of God on the Lord's Day? Now, we've already talked about the value of worshiping together, that it it can help us to be reminded of God's goodness and grace and who He is and what He's done, and we can hold each other accountable, we can help each other see through those masks and those blind spots, and we can encourage each other as we're going through tough times to know that, that this too will pass and that God will be faithful and true and He will see us through. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is, is, explains that to us. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Church, can't you see how quickly the day is approaching? I believe that now more than ever, God's people need each other. We cannot give up meeting together. And from my vantage as a a pastor, from my perspective, I can tell you I've seen families that have been faithful in worship and families that have not been so faithful in worship. And for whatever reason, and sometimes there are good reasons people can't be regular in worship, and I'm not knocking that. I'm thankful we've got the radio, and people can listen on the radio and be a part of us that way as well. But as I look out at folks who just treat Sunday morning worship flippantly, just when it's convenient, they don't grow stronger in their faith because of that. Their children don't develop a deeper love for God and His church and a deeper commitment to worship and discipleship themselves because of that. The kingdom of God is not advanced because of that. Becoming irregular in corporate worship only isolates us, discourages us, distracts us from God and His mission. I heard a story about one preacher that went to to visit an older church member who hadn't been in worship in years. And it was a cold day, kind of like today, and the preacher went and sat down next to him, and they were both looking at the fire. And the guy looked at him and said, Pastor, I know why you're here. And I'm sorry, but I just don't see the value in coming to worship. I, I can, I can you know, live for God on my own just fine. And all the pastor did, didn't say a word, 
He took the, the poker from the side of the fireplace and he grabbed the coal and he was trying to rake it out into the middle of the floor. And they just sat there and watched. As separated from the fire, it got colder and colder and colder. And the man looked at him and said, Preacher, I'll be there Sunday. If there's only one thing I can challenge you to do today for 2018, it's this. Consider how you can spur one another on toward love and good deeds by regularly meeting together to worship and to encourage each other and to serve and to pray and to study and to grow in grace together as a family, as the body of Christ. Now, to worship God in truth, you must first and foremost know who He is. Today, you may not know who He is. The Bible says that we are all born enemies of God. Because of, of sin, we're at war with God. That Jesus Christ loves us so much that He took our sins upon Himself. He took the wrath upon Himself that you and I deserve as enemies of God, that we might become children of God. If you want to truly worship God, if you want to know the love that makes Him worthy of our worship, I invite you to come this morning and give your life to Jesus Christ. Trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, to be saved and made right with God so that you can love Him and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Maybe this morning God is speaking to your heart about that. He's drawing you to Himself this morning. Here in a moment we're going to sing, and I invite you to come. And make that commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe for you, God is drawing you to this church family to unite with us and, and to, to commit yourself to worshiping and serving and growing with us. And you are welcome to come and do that today. Maybe for you, God is just calling you to come to this altar and pray and begin to retune your heart for worship. What do you need to confess this morning? What have you allowed to get in the way of your heart truly worshiping God in spirit and truth? What other competing things are there that's drawing your love and affection for God away? Would you come this morning and deal with God as He leads, as you stand?